Good morning, everybody. I'm a grateful, enthusiastic, and active member of the Alamon Family Groups. My name is Jack. I want to thank you all for inviting me out here. Uh, through the grace of God and good sponsorship and the 12 steps of the Alamon Family Groups graciously given to us by Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to bring my drunken girlfriend home to meet the wife and kids since... <laughs> Since February the 19th of 1990. I love coming out to this part of the country. You get the stuff out of the way right up front. So you don't have to sit in the back and do the math and decide if I know anything by virtue of the time I've got. Uh, I want to thank the committee for asking me to come out and talk. The reason I'm here is because Liz stole one of my tapes from a meeting she was going to. She confessed to me before the meeting this morning, so I'm I'm here the product of a defect of character. That's okay. I'm the product of a lot of defects of character. I want to thank my hosts this weekend, uh, Dick and Marlene. We went out to dinner last night with some of their family and uh, their lovely granddaughter. And we do have an awful lot in common. I'll share a little bit about that with you later. And... Uh, I'm just really glad to be here. When I got the call a while back about coming to talk at a conference called the Rule 62 Conference, I thought, well, that's right, just right up my alley. Those of you who don't know uh, what Rule 62 is, it has to do with not taking yourself too seriously, and there's a bit of a, a history behind uh, where that Rule 62 came from, which I won't bore you with, but uh, you can ask me about it later. I'd be glad to share it with you. As soon as I got the phone call, I got to thinking about that, and there, I do have a Rule 62 story. It happened after I was about a year in Al-Anon, and and uh, as Marlene mentioned, I work in a in a business where I do silly things for a living and I get paid. I crash cars and set myself on fire and various and sundry other stuff. And and it's uh it's kind of an ego driven thing to do for a living. And it's a good thing too because if you're a person who's full of fear like I was most of my life and when I got here, uh, your ego has to be big enough to overcome the fear to do some of the things you have to do for a living. And I was at a market one day and I bumped into a guy who's a who's another stuntman in the business, and I hadn't seen him in a lot of years. We just happened to cross each other. And he was with a young lady who happened to be his ex-girlfriend, and she was just beautiful. And they were, I don't know why they were hanging out together. They were exes. You know, we don't we do laser beams on exes where I come from. I, I didn't get it, but she was there. And we spent about 45 minutes in the store catching up on old times and telling stunt stories about movies we'd worked on and things we'd done. And, you know, the whole time we're telling stories, this young girl who happened to be uh, – I don't know if any of you ever seen the show Married with Children. Uh, Al Bundy's character frequently has fantasies where he's in bed with these uh, very busty, beautiful women in in, uh, Merry Widow things in bed, these fantasy dream sequences they have. And she was, he was a regular on that show, and she was one of the Al Bundy fantasy girls, and she was very beautiful. And all the time we're telling these stories, and the stories are getting bigger and better, and the stunts are getting bigger, she's looking me up and down from top to bottom. This is about ten years ago. So she's watching me, I'm watching her, and the stories are getting bigger, and the fires are getting bigger, and the car wrecks are getting bigger, and she just can't get enough of me. <laughs> so about 45 minutes into this, I told him, I said, well, you know, I need to get going. i got stuff going on, and I know you folks have got to go. And she looks over at me, and she says, so, are you married? And I'm going to have to break her heart. Oh, yeah. I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am very married. And she's, she, I swear to God, she looks me up and down one more time. She goes, oh, that's too bad. My mom could really go for you. <laughs> <laughs> she, 
she was serious. <laughs> and I had that coming. I get, I come to you guys this morning fresh with my speaker zit. I get usually get a zit if my ego needs a trim. It's right here between my eyes. Can you see it in the back row back there? God thought I needed a little humility. He put two there in case it needed company. So here I am. And uh, I'm really grateful to be here. I had the privilege of flying here with Earl on uh, Friday. Earl's a dear friend of mine. I love Earl. And uh, anytime I'm on an airplane with Earl, I know I won't need to be watching the in-flight movie because Earl's better than an in-flight movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, the airline was smart enough to station me far enough forward in the cabin ahead of Earl that if he got out of control and was running for the cockpit to seize the controls, I could clothesline him and save the plane, which is what Alanons do. <laughs> Every once in a while, I look over my shoulder to see how Earl's doing, and I looked over my shoulder, and Earl had the headset on and was watching the in-flight movie, and I knew it was going to be okay because we're watching Shrek. <laughs> Earl's going to be fine. There's a little green guy who's afraid of nothing and kicking the crap out of people all over the countryside. And it's a good al movie, too, because he went out to get a fair princess and came home with a dragon. <laughs> and uh, and the princess that he did rescue, every night she'd lock herself up and become some kind of a beast. I, I don't know about you, but that's my story. And uh, I, I, it hasn't escaped my notice. There's been a lot of uh, wonderful AA speakers this weekend. I love speakers. I, I love the art of storytelling. I think that's what differentiate, differentiates us from a lot of other movements in history, particularly in the history of alcoholism, that we have this, we have this gift for sharing stories, whether it's from a podium or whether it's one-on-one or on the phone or taking uh, telephone calls at a central office or whatever. We have a gift for relating our story that we don't, Lecture folks, we share our story, and I think that's a tremendous talent. I believe it's the reason that I get asked to speak from time to time, because I'm a storyteller. And uh, where I learned about storytelling was, uh, oddly enough, from a fellow that kind of, uh, in a roundabout way, came back into my life recently, is that there was a fellow I worked with who was a stuntman when I was real new into business, and I wasn't doing a lot of stunt work then. I was doing another job. And, and uh, I admired him tremendously. He was very well established in the business. He did a lot of work. He was a very visible guy. He did a lot of big stunts. And he was well known. He lived in, the, eventually, uh, in the first four or five years that I knew him, he graduated to having a house that was worth probably a million or a million and a half dollars. And uh, I know now, looking back, that he had some problems with alcohol and probably some other substances. But he had this remarkable gift for telling stories. And I studied this guy. I would have given anything to trade places with this man. He was just loved and admired by a lot of people, and he could hold a group of folks spellbound and tell them a story of an event that they were there to witness themselves and tell it in such a way that they would be entertained and laugh and just relive the whole thing. And it's a wonderful gift that he had. And uh, later on in the process of his disease, he began to lose things. Alcohol is a great cleaner. It'll clean you out of a house. It'll clean you out of a wife. It'll clean you out of a bank account. And over the years, I watched that happen to him. And I was one of the few folks that, as he was making a long descent to the bottom, that he still called me on a regular basis to talk. And uh, I didn't do a lot of talking. I just did a lot of listening. It, it happened that I had been had gotten Alan on by that time, and I knew just to shut up and let him talk and, and try to be an example of recovery. There's a saying that I ran across on the East Coast. I think it's on your on your schedule here uh, for the conference that I heard a few years back when I was visiting in Baltimore and it was an AA talking to other AAs. He said, when I walk out in public, he says, I, I have to remember that I might be the only example of the big book. I may be the only big book that anybody ever gets to read. And uh, what I tried to do with him was be an example of recovery and listen to his stories. 
recently I ran into a fellow down on and we got to talking and he found out what I did for a living and we started exchanging some names to see if we had any familiar uh, ground in the middle. And it turns out that he is this gentleman's cousin. And I got an update on how he's doing because he, he eventually lost the million dollar home. He lost the career. He lost everything that went with it. He lost the woman or the women that went with it. And uh, he felt like he lost the phone, so I quit getting phone calls. He was living in a car last time I saw him. He's now a resident of a park that, uh, as coincidentally, we have our uh, our central office uh, intergroup meetings happen at this park at one of the, the uh, little centers in there. He now is a homeless man living in the park as a, as a result of the disease of alcoholism. Um, uh, you know, I don't hear it out on a lot of talk about the fact that alcoholism is... Uh, we say it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. We kind of get some mileage out of that, but we forget to talk about the fact that it's progressive and fatal. And uh, my experience is that it is, that alcoholism is progressive and fatal. It's, it's so powerful that it kills people in sobriety, and it does that all the time. And uh, we see it all the time. People die of the residual effects of a life of drinking and drugs. People die all the time uh, in both programs as a result of stress-induced heart attacks and and uh, strokes and other stuff, and uh, I, I have the utmost respect and fear of the disease of alcoholism. I also have the utmost amount of gratitude because if it wasn't for my wife's alcoholism, I wouldn't have found my way to you folks and found a way to live that's different than the one I'm about to share with you. The last thing I'll tell you before I go into my story is it hasn't escaped my notice as an Al-Anon sitting in the front row of a bunch of AA meetings this weekend that several of the readers, oh, by the way, so a bunch of the AAs have talked about you know, newcomers in AA, and we do this in Al-Anon too, we do a little bit different. You don't really do any dating or make any serious decisions in your first year. And it has not escaped my notice there's been at least three or four readers up here whose sobriety date was September of last year. As an Al-Anon, I like to keep tabs on who's going to become available soon. <laughs> if you're in the room, 30 more days. If you're a stalker, I'll point them out to you later. Just... I'm here because I'm not all there. I grew up in a household that, uh, I basically I grew up in a motorcycle gang, oddly as that sounds. You know, uh, we grew up kind of a rough and tumble bunch. We rodeoed and rode motorcycles, and my uncles and my dad were founding members of a pretty uh, big motorcycle gang that was uh, started out in California. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of difference in those days between the racing stuff and the, and the motorcycle stuff. We, uh, I remember going to the races on the weekend with my dad. We'd go off to these national AMA events to watch the big boys race, and we'd stay at the hotel with the with the riders and the mechanics. Now, what I know about the sport today is most of those people are very professional. It's a big money sport. There's a lot of endorsement money, and there are uh, tremendous, serious athletes involved in that. But my experience with it as a kid in the 60s, as a young, in the early 60s as a young man, was I would, we'd go to the track, and we would stay at the hotel where the racers stayed, and that's where the party was. And uh, believe me, they had a big party going on there. And my job in the morning as a little, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old pre-Alanon young man was to get up and go get all of them out of bed because they're all hung over and bang on the doors and get the riders and mechanics up to go out and 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 uh, you know take the lawn furniture out of the pool and clean up any big messes so we could get out and come back again next year at whatever hotel this was. And last night I was getting on the elevator and a gentleman got on there and I don't think he was one of us. I have reason to suspect that. And, he looked over at my badge and he says, uh, what's going on here this weekend? He looked somewhat suspicious and I said, uh, we're having a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, well, uh, how's everybody doing? (laughs) 
said, uh, pretty good. There's no lawn furniture in the pool, and I didn't have to step over anybody to get in the elevator. And, he, and uh, if he comes to the meeting tonight and you guys give away a big bug to the newest newcomer, he can use it as a coaster for the six-pack he was carrying up the elevator when I was with him last night. People never know what to expect with us when we come around. Uh, gosh. Anyway, uh, this family I grew up in, there was a lot of violence. You know, we had gang fights, gun fights, and car chases. And I was just in the immediate family. And uh, it occasionally spilled over into the neighborhood. I, I met my first wife at a gang fight. I was at my dad's house getting a lecture because my mom had sent me to my dad's house to get a lecture about getting into fights because it seemed I'd been in a lot of fights. And, and uh, I, the fight that I was being sent to my dad's house to be lectured on, oddly enough, he had been in. Matter of fact, he had drove us to the fight to go get the guys. <laughs> So, and my stepdad, my wife's husband at that time, she didn't know, had been with us to go get in the fight, you know. And the, the drill was as we pull up, we're taking the wristwatches off because we all had Spidell wristwatches. Remember those stretchy wrist, wristwatch bands are probably still around. But as soon as you hit somebody, the watch would go down and break the back of your knuckles on the back side. So the ritual was you always took your watch off before you got out of the car. We had a lot of other rituals and stuff. So I'm in my living room, my dad's living room getting this lecture about getting into a fight. And my two brothers have gone down the street with a couple of young ladies. They got about half a block away and picked a fight with eight young men in a car from that came from the other side of the tracks, which wasn't far from, from where we were on the other side of the tracks. And uh, picked a fight with eight guys. My two little brothers are like 13, 14 years old. And one brother comes running in in the middle of my lecture and tells my dad, Johnny's in a fight down the street with eight guys and they're killing him. So my car was the one backed out in the end of the driveway, the farthest. So we jumped in my car and backed out of the driveway and went smoking the tires down the street to go rescue my little brother. And as we were getting there, they were done beating him up and had kind of lost interest and was getting ready to head out. All eight of them was piling into a car there in this driveway. And I thought it would be a, a very bright idea to pull in there and slide up behind him and block him in. Because now both of us have all eight of them surrounded. <laughs> And there ensued a large crowbar and bumper jack melee, which my future next ex-wife to be was across the street watching, and I got my back broken by by a bumper jack, and we we finally ran him off. We uh, it was it was a very colorful evening, and we found my little brother who was laying with broken ribs in the woods where they'd beat him up, and we all went off to the hospital as a family. We did everything as a family to get sewed up. <laughs> And my future wife-to-be was across the street watching the whole thing and required medication. Uh, my mother gave her a little blue pill of some kind. I think there was a blue pill described earlier this morning from the podium, and it had that effect on her. She sat in the corner watched us all bleeding and giggled for about an hour before we went to the hospital. <laughs> now, my brother picked that fight, and I had to marry her. Does that seem fair to you? <laughs> That's how I met my first wife. She was the adult child of an alcohol of, of alcoholics and... Uh, that manifests itself in a lot of ways in our relationship. I tell a story about when I was a kid. There's a product of this family that I'll, I'll share with you because we've talked about running people over with cars today already. And that is that uh, I got a call. I was, I'd was i moved out of that house. I got out early. I had to for my own survival. You know, My dad was dating, and I was his secretary taking the calls. And I couldn't distinguish one voice from another. You know, If you called one of them by the wrong name on the phone, you'd get a whooping. And I just couldn't take the pressure, and I moved out. So... Uh, I get a call one night in the middle of the night. Uh, I got calls like this all the time. My stepmom called up and said, Johnny's been at the bar. He got in a fight with a bunch of guys. Same guy that had his ribs broken in the woods earlier I just told you about. And, and he's got the shotgun. He went back. You have to go get him. Of course I've got to go get him. That's what I do. I go get him. 
So I get out of bed and pull on my clothes and get in my car and I head over. I find him at his local watering hole. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And, and he's in the parking lot with this shotgun propped up in the window, which is smashed out of his car as a result of the altercation with these guys. And he's waiting for him to come back. Well, if any of you all been to California or did any drinking in California, you know that the bars close at 2. He's there at 3 a.m. I'm not sure what he's waiting for, but they've gone home, which is probably for the best because he'd have shot them if they'd still been there. I did what I do. I got out, and I talked to him for a few minutes, and I kind of squirreled the gun away from him and took it apart and took the rounds out and stuck it in the trunk. And I said about going home, he says, well, I'm going to go find him. Oh, good. So he gets in his van. He goes that way, and I go that way. And on the way out the driveway, we've got CB radios in our car. In those days, we did a lot of CB radio stuff. He calls me on the radio and says, I found them. They're around the back. Oh, good. So I turn the car around. i got to go back in again. So I go around this side of the this big parking lot, big uh, shopping center. And I go around this way, and he's gone around that way. And as we come around the back, there's about five acres of asphalt and these light standards with concrete bases in them. And parked around, right in the middle of them is about three cars, just all almost touching around this light standard. And there's about eight young men there having a three o'clock in the morning after the bar's closed beer. And uh, hearing the voice come over the radio one more time, he says, I'm going in. Now, if any of you don't speak Al-Anon, let me translate that. That's we're going in. <laughs> so he's going from that side, and I'm coming from this side. we got these guys surrounded, just like the eight that we had before. And I'm trying to come up with a plan, because he's been at the bar drinking all night, so I'm guessing he's not going to be too good in a fight. And I'm trying to, and I'm a math major. I'm attending the university studying mathematics, and I'm trying to figure out how my, I'm going to handle my seven of the eight. <laughs> So I came up with a plan, and the plan was I'm going to go in there fast with that car. I've been making a living. I started racing cars when I was four and motorcycles when I was eight and pretty good with the steering wheel. I figured if I got going hard enough and turned that car sideways and slid it in there sideways to one of those other cars and ran into it, that I might be able to pin four of them and give me a chance to get out of the car, which is a critical time in any gang fight. Daddy taught me that. That time, that very sensitive time when you're getting into or out of the vehicle is, that needs to be heavily considered, and that was my plan. So I set that in motion, I started buzzing the car in there, and coming at a pretty good clip, and he's coming the other way, and they're paying attention to me, because I'm coming right at them. They're, they've got their beers there, and they're looking, looking pretty much at me. And I got to the point of no return where I was just getting the car starting to go sideways, I was good at that too, and the voice comes over my radio one more time, and it says, I don't think that's them. <laughs> Well, now what? So I gathered it up, and I managed to get by him. I went by him about 70 miles an hour, and I left the parking lot because I thought it would be less than advisable to discuss my behavior with them after what I had already started to do. And that was just another day in paradise in my family. And I'll share with you that there were a lot of adventures like that, not all of them as colorful as that one. Or as funny as that one, but it was just a normal thing. What I need to tell you about that is that I wasn't a 16-year-old kid with a new driver's license and no responsibility. They crawled out of that bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. When I made a decision where, I don't know if you all have been watching news lately, in the last six or eight months or so, there's been an incident in California where somebody ran down a bunch of kids with a car near a college or something, and uh, he killed several of them. There's no doubt in my mind today that if I'd have done what I had planned to do, somebody might have ducked. 
If one of those guys had ducked, I'd have killed him. He'd have died instantly out of squashing between the cars because I fully intended to run in there and do that because I believe that, that uh, my life is run on fear. I believe that my life is in danger and I'm going to fight for it. It doesn't occur to me that I have the option of going the other way. I, my, my options are removed, I believe, by, uh, by how I grew up and, the, and, and indirectly the disease of alcoholism. You see, my parents were not alcoholic as I understand it. But they were adult children of alcoholics, and that that home was as was crazy as I was crazy when I came through the doors of Alamon. That bed that I got out of at two o'clock in the morning was with a wife. That bed that I got out of at two o'clock in the morning was from a house where I was a sole form of support for that wife and two little children. And I don't remember the exact date that this happened, whether it was before or after an incident involving my daughter. It may have also been that I crawled out of that bed with a daughter who was in need of 24-hour medical treatment, uh, and and. Uh, and the benefits that I had and the job that I did to survive. And I got out of that bed and made those decisions because at some point in my uh, my upbringing, my, world, my priorities got turned upside down. That I believe that, that, that the, the family is right and the, the secrets must be kept. All of the sick things that we talk about in Al-Anon and a lot, and I've heard from the podium talking about an AA, the sick family dynamic that we get involved in around uh, the diseases that we all grow up with. So... Uh, you know, that's what I did. I was uh, I was a 22-year-old young man. I'd just gotten out of the service. I'd been meritoriously promoted several times. I was a Vietnam-era veteran, and I had been a sergeant in the Marine Corps in charge of people and, and equipment and stuff like that, and I went and made decisions like that. And it was nothing new. did that a lot. Another incident happened, which I'll share with you, and I'll get on to the recovery stuff, is that that little girl that I talked about, we came out of the service. She was one year old when she drowned in a little kiddie pool in my backyard, one foot deep a foot and a half deep that we'd bought at a thrifty market in the care of a babysitter. And uh, she did not die as a result of that. She was hospitalized for about six weeks, and then they sent her. They wanted to institutionalize her in a state institution, and my wife at that time uh, refused to have that happen and said that we'd take her home, and we did. And uh, she required constant medical care. She had a trach tube in. She was comatose. She required feeding through a tube in her stomach. She required constant care and physical therapy and all the things that go with with taking care of an invalid child she had to have done for her. And I would love to tell you that, uh, you know, the macho, uh, tough guy who wades into, you know, the, the blood and the vomit, as I've described to you already, uh, was there to be there for my little girl to be able to help with her medical care. And the truth of the matter is that the biggest load of guilt that I carried through the doors of Al-Anon and that I carried for almost all of my life was that I couldn't be there for my daughter. That after the point of her drowning until she died a year later, I could not physically be in the room with my daughter for any length of time. She slept by my side of the bed with heart monitors and breathing monitors and electronic apparatus. And uh, uh, I would get out of bed early in the morning and go to work at a job where we where we routinely work long, long hours every day, which was fine by me because gone is where I needed to be. And there were days when they would turn me loose early and I would stay. They'd say, we don't need you for the rest of the day. Go on home. And I would stay to the end because I didn't know what else to do. And uh, this is, as one of our speakers has shared this weekend, this is what I get in hindsight. It's nothing that I recognize going in. It's just what I understand from looking back. And and uh, this was a, I can't tell you the load that that was that I carried all of my life, this secret that was going to go with me to the grave that I'm this gutless wonder. And, and uh, she passed away a, a year later. And one of the things that I did, uh, I, I wasn't real happy married to that woman. I used to place the blame for dissolution of that marriage at her feet uh, for many, many years. I recognize today as a result of a, a fearless and searching moral inventory that I bear most of the responsibility for the, for not participating in that marriage. And uh, one of the answers I had to that unhappy situation at home was, and to keep me away from home before and after my daughter passed, was to just be gone. 
and I would go away on movie locations and I would behave as if I was single. Uh, and that's been sure from podiums this weekend too. And, and I created an awful lot of wreckage when I was out there and I met a lady who was to uh, later change my life. The speaker this morning talked about she's waiting for uh, God to put the next man in her life with a lightning bolt naked at her feet. And uh, I have to tell you that that experience is not all that it's cracked up to be because that's pretty much my story. I met this woman on location. When you poured in alcohol, the clothes fell off. That was close enough for me. I didn't require a lightning bolt. I was on location in Arizona, and I met this young lady. And I, on our first encounter, I, you know, I'm a morning person. I talk about being a morning person. I'm bright and cheery and witty in the morning. Best I'm going to be all day right out of bed much to the irritation of any alcoholic in the vicinity. <laughs> and I was going to the coffee pot one morning, and she's coming the other way, and I said something cheery like, good morning. And she was, of course, hung over or between drinks or whatever, and she growled at me, and I was doomed. And then in an incident later that day or the next day, where a friend of mine and I were throwing a Frisbee around. We, were very, we worked very hard in the movie business. We are throwing a Frisbee around base camp, and... Clarence was about seven feet tall and thought I was too, and he flung this big heavy frisbee over my head, and it sailed over my head towards this van where this door had just opened, and this busload of girl extras with big hair and tight jeans is getting out to work on the movie. It was a very cerebral movie we were working on. <laughs> and I hollered, look out, which is the only direction my wife ever took for me in the 15 years I've known, known her. She looked out, and the frisbee hit her dead between the eyes and knocked her out. <laughs> Clarence is nowhere to be seen. I don't know what happened to Clarence, but I run to the van and jump inside where she is now prone on the front seat, having gotten whacked in the face with this Frisbee, and I start apologizing for a Frisbee I did not throw. Anybody see a pattern here? She's kind of coming to, and she's a little groggy and a little bit irritated, which was, it was morning. And I'm asking her if she needs anything. You need some ice? Can I get you some water? You want me to call the medic? Can I do anything for you? And she's rubbing her head and she's saying, no, 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 leave me alone. No, no, I'm not leaving her alone. I said, is there anything I can do? And she said, maybe you can buy me a drink sometime. God was working in my life a long time before I found you guys. I just wasn't listening. Through a series of circumstances on that movie, we wound up hooking up. I was dating her best friend. She really found it totally irresistible that I was married and that I was dating her best friend. She just couldn't resist that. And she put the moves on me at a club we were out at one night. And, and I got her unlisted phone number and called her up. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. We had we were dating right away. <laughs> Again, dating right away. <clears throat> Changed locations, and she came down to visit me for a couple of weeks. And her daddy was sick back in Nebraska. She's a Nebraska girl. And I put her on a plane to go see her daddy, and she was flying out as my wife was flying in. You know, why make two trips to the airport? <laughs> you know, it's all fun and games, but that was some serious business, some serious wreckage that I had to clean up after I got to Al-Anon. By the way, if you came in here late, this is an Al-Anon meeting. <laughs> I've never been much of a drinker. I just didn't like it. That feeling, that, that effect of alcohol that my wife drank to achieve is something that's always made me uncomfortable. I don't like not being in control. <laughs> Although we have this thing going on now. I, I'm just coming off of a cold. You'll pardon me for blowing my nose once in a while, but my wife is nursing me back to health. And, you know, I can drink NyQuil. NyQuil has alcohol in it, and I can drink it if I want to. I'm an Alana. I'm not the alcoholic. 
So once in a while I have a slug out of the NyQuil to give me some sleep at night. And we have a long history of debating about this NyQuil thing. And it goes back to, we were one night, this is a couple of years back, I had a real bad flu and I got out this bottle of NyQuil out of the cupboard and I pulled the lid off of it and I poured it in the measuring cup, which drives her nuts. She says, just take a hit off of it. I make sure I measure it in front of her because I know it really bothers her. And I drink the measured dose. And I read the bottle and I says, oh, and it says, big bottle. And it's been in the cupboard a while. I looked at the label and it says, this expires. It's a good thing I'm drinking this tonight. It expires tomorrow. Which means I'll drink it tonight, but tomorrow I'm not touching the stuff. It's poison. I'm an Elanon. I read the label. She says, that whole big bottle expires tomorrow? I said, yeah. She said, you better drink the rest tonight. So the last couple of times I've had a cold, I told you I don't drink. I'm a lightweight. I pour a little thing in this thing and I knock it back. And it does that thing that when you take a shot of alcohol, does to me what I, you know, it's just this much, but I'm easy, you know. I take a hit and I get that. And I look over at her and she's covered in goosebumps from head to toe. Now when she catches me going down to get the night, well, she follows me from room to room. She, well, I said, I don't want you to be that happy. <laughs> she loves watching me slug that stuff back. My wife, my beautiful wife, sends you her greetings. She's, uh, her name is Leslie. She celebrated 13 years of sobriety just recently. And uh, she is, uh, as I've described her many times, the best member of Alcoholics Anonymous that it's my privilege to know. And I base that on the fact that I hear her sharing at meetings. I'm often sitting in the front row where she can refer to me at different parts of her talk. (laughs) But then I go home with her and I watch her do the things that she talks about from the podiums in Alcoholics Anonymous. I watch her get out of bed in the middle of the night and go do the 12-step work and go to neighborhoods where I wouldn't go in the daytime to get women and get them out and, and do that deal. And she does. And I'm... I'm many times blessed to have a sober woman alcoholic in my household. A series of circumstances happened. Uh, she moved to California where I was living, and there was a wild and woolly set of events that happened there. And, and uh, we, we had a date one night. I'm still living at home with the wife and the kids. And, uh, and uh, she calls me up for a date, and I go to pick her up. My wife's out of town, and on the way there, I can't find it. And I call her on the phone, and I'm backtracking, and I come across this big wreck in this intersection. And his Honda car is buried in the front of this big old Oldsmobile that's crossed the center stripe, drove right between the headlights, and it didn't hold up very well. The only thing that wasn't wrinkled was the license plate. And they're cutting this blonde out of it who's not breathing with the jaws of life. And there's ambulances and police cars and a lot of a lot of action going on there. And, and uh, guess who that was? She'd come out to find me and was coming the other way and had gone head on with this car. And the cops don't know who she is. And uh, I told him who she was. I gave him a name as best I could do. And we all went to the hospital. And, you know, in the hospital, something happened, which is very significant to me today, is that we're in the emergency ward waiting for her to get treated. She's got massive neck and back trauma. She's got broken bones, and she's not doing too well. And she stops breathing again like she did in the car. And I called the nurses in, and they jumped on her and called a, called a code and brought the crash carts in and worked on her for a while and got her going. And when she came to again, she rolled her head over on the gurney, and she looked at me, and she said, Let me go. Let me go which I dismissed as delirium. She's been in a terrible wreck. She doesn't know what she's talking about. What I understand today and what she would share with you if she were here is that what I got to see was that door open and close just briefly to see what is on the other side of the active disease of alcoholism. Somebody who would rather die than pay the price for one more car wreck, for one more thing that has happened. She would rather have died. She figured the police were waiting for her out front. And uh, she would rather have died than paid that price. And she describes a great white light thing where she was walking into the light and they sent her back and she argued with them. You know, <laughs> not going, don't want to go there. 
And uh, it was the beginning of the end because what happened after that was they determined that she didn't have any medical insurance. So they excused her from this little hospital. They were just a little trauma unit. They weren't that big. And they didn't set any of her broken bones, and they decided she had to go. So they put a neck brace on her and wheeled her out to my car and loaded her up. The nurse that loaded her in my car looks over at me and says, I hope you live near a hospital. She's not doing very well. I said, thank you so much for sharing. So now we have a dilemma. You see, I never found the house where she was staying with this phantom uncle that I've yet to meet to this day. And she's drunk, and she don't know how to find it either, and we don't know what to do. So she whispers to me, because that's the best she can do. She says, well, I guess you can take me to a hotel. I thought about that for about eight seconds, and I said, no, I've got a better idea. I'll take you home. Those of you who aren't giggling have forgotten, I have a wife and family at home. So we did. I called up the, that wife and I told her, strung out a bunch of lies. I was pretty good at that by that time and told her a friend of mine had been in a wreck and I was bringing her home and she met us in the front yard and we carried her through the door and I dropped her. I was a little nervous as bringing the girlfriend home to meet the family, you know. And she showed that from a lot of podiums, so I have to assume it's true. I don't have a recollection of that. I think I was having an emotional blackout. And I sat by the bed for about three days waiting for her to die because I really didn't think she was going to make it. And she was God wasn't done with her and wasn't done with me, certainly. And she managed to pull through. And we set up about six months of some very interesting living. <laughs> where uh, she's a complete invalid requiring medical care and, and uh, you know, trips to the doctor. And we finally got her broken bones set at a local doctor and got her some treatment, got her some pain medication. Thank God she really needed some drugs because she couldn't drink. She couldn't hardly eat anything. And we showered together. I'd hold her up, and my wife would wash her, and I'd flip her around. She'd wash the other side, and we'd put her back down, and we'd stand her up and drop her drawers and put her on the toilet. It was all very cozy. <laughs> it didn't become complicated until later on towards the end of the six months when she was starting to get up and around when my wife began setting her up on date double dates with us. And so I'm going out to restaurants where I'm sitting with my wife and my girlfriend with her date is rubbing my leg under the table, and I became very confused. <laughs> So when she got a job offer to leave the state of California and go to Texas, I thought that'd be a great idea, and we sent her off to Texas. And I said about dissolving that marriage, which I hadn't had the courage to do. Another set of circumstances arose, and my wife will tell you when she talks, that any place she went, she got there. She was there about six months. She'd do good for three months, bad for three months, and get fired and move on. And uh, that's what happened when she was in Page, Arizona. Why I met her? She just she just finished her six months and was getting ready to be out of there because she'd burned every bridge in town, so she'd come to California and run out of ground. You know, beyond that, your hat floats. And uh, she uh, went to Texas and spent, uh, guess how long she was in Texas? Very good. There'll be a quiz later. I went down to get her. I'm, I'm now a single man living at home. I went to go get her. I took my brother. We drove straight through to Houston, Texas, and picked her up and brought her home to live happily ever after. Yeehaw! <laughs> I got my feet in the fire that time, boys and girls. I spent the last year and a half of my wife's active drinking with her, and I got an education on alcoholism that I hope I will never forget. You see, before she got sober and came to AA, and I got the good graces a year and a half after that to wander in the rooms of Al-Anon, I had no understanding of a disease that had been affecting me my entire life. You see, all of those, that brother who we who had the broken ribs in the woods and who we were going to run the people over in the parking lot is one of many of my brothers and sisters whose drinking bothers me. Whether they're alcoholic or not or by their own admission, I don't know if I have the right to say, and 
Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But my life had been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism ever since I can remember, and it affected how I went out and dealt with the world. I was the guy, I'm the fixer, I'm the go-to guy, I'm the designated driver. It just is where I fit in. In the Marine Corps, I was the guy that drove them back and forth. We'd drive to L.A. and buy dope and take it back to the Marine base in 29 Palms, where if you're caught going through the gate onto the base with the dope, you're going to Leavenworth. And I don't do no dope. And I'm not buying it, and I'm not smoking it, eating it, or shooting it. But I'm hanging with the guys that do, and I fit in the organization because I drive. And I'd have done time the same as them if we'd have got stopped going on the base with the with the with the narcotics that we were carrying. That's just who, how I fit. And uh, during that year and a half, we round and round and round. I'm married to this woman. She's evil, mean, and nasty. She's Shrek's girlfriend at night, every day, all day long. She's a beast. And I don't know what the heck's going on. I'd come home at night, and she'd have a couple of glasses of wine, and then she's out of control. And, I, you know, many a night she'd fall asleep in the living room, and I'd carry her to bed. Many a night, what she did was she blacked out, passed out, and I carried her to bed. And in the morning, she would get up and crawl to my side of the bed and pull my head over because she didn't see very well and look real close to my face and then go, Because she's a blackout ballroom drinker. She doesn't come home at night. She goes to the bar every night and gets drunk. Every night she blacks out and forgets where she lives. And every night she goes home with somebody else. Every morning she wakes up in a new place doing a new thing with a new person. And she was just so relieved every morning she'd call over to my side of the bed and the back of the head belonged to the front. Because she had no idea who was over there. And she finally admitted to me she had a problem with alcoholism. And I told her she didn't. And it, went, it was just ugly. It went round and round and round. Finally, she checked herself in. I was gone on location. I was coming home to throw her out. I was done. She's out of there. And, uh, you know, she checked herself in. And her plan was, she had a plan. plan was, I was going to come home in two weeks. In two weeks, she would detox, get sober, be wonderful. Everything would be okay. Yeah. I came home a week early. She's still shaking and crying. She hasn't told me she's checked herself in yet. I'm still fixing to throw her out. And uh, I, I said, can I have a glass of wine? Because once in a while, I'd have a glass of wine. It'd be about half the size of this. And it only filled about half full. And sometimes I would leave some. Ooh, that irritated her too. And uh, she dropped the bottle three times, started crying hysterically, and ran out the front door. It's just another night at my house. This is nothing unusual. Stuff like this happened all the time. I didn't even make any special note of it. And then she came back in and told me she checked herself in. and She had to get some help. And I thought, okay, she can stay. We're not married yet. She's got one foot in the door and one in a banana peel. She's out of here any minute now, but we'll wait. So she's going to the, she signed her in as an outpatient at this place. And she's going back and forth. And, and she's got a lot of adventures that happened there. And somebody talked about, uh, Vicky talked about H&I this morning. I owe a great debt to AAH&I. Uh, because they brought panels into that little recovery place where she was, and she got her first hope from a little old guy who had the laser beam eyes. It's like just really got the sober thing, and he's carrying the message. And, she, and he carried a card that said, I am responsible, and he gave her the card. And she still carries it to this day, 13 years later, around in her purse. And it impressed her enough that she was she opened up her ears and could listen. And the next panel that came in uh, had a lady who was to become her sponsor. Uh, Pat is a lady who I describe as AA's answer to Lizzie Borden. I'm going to tell you, if before this meeting you're all milling around talking and having a good time, when she came through the door, you would all stop and look, because she was scary sober. That's the best way. She was scary. She was really sober. She'd lost everything in sobriety. Her sobriety date coincided with a massive stroke where she lay on a on a gurney paralyzed and her and her children's papers being taken away from her custody-wise were laid on her chest where she couldn't even reach them. 
in new sobriety. This is how the woman got sober. She was very sober and people were scared to death of her. Not me. I love that woman right away. She was so mean to my wife. My wife starts calling her every day and she says, uh, she says, will you sponsor me? Pat says, uh, you know, I don't sponsor losers. We've, we've been talking about it. We don't think you're going to make it, but you can call me. I love that woman. I love her. After a year of sobriety, my wife said to her, I said, will you, will you be my sponsor now? She says, well, okay, but let's not tell anybody just yet. <laughs> and she called her sponsor every day and report. She'd report on me, I found out later. She, every day she had a check-in call, get the machine. Hi, Pat, this is Leslie. Didn't drink today. Think it's going to be all right. If I just get rid of that son of a bitch, I'll call you tomorrow. <laughs> Pat wouldn't let her leave. She said, uh, we don't make any major decisions in our first year. And for those of you who are in your first year, Pat said to my wife, she said, but you're extra sick. Three years. Wouldn't let her leave. <laughs> my wife decided if she met me, it'd be okay. So uh, she brought her over for dinner, cooked a nice dinner. My wife's a gourmet cook and uh, had worked in the restaurant trades for years. Brought her over. We had a nice dinner. We had a nice chat. I remember a nice chat. I don't think it was too nice on their side. But they went in the kitchen and they're cleaning up. And she looked over at Pat. She says, so what do you think? She's looking for permission to throw me out or to leave. Pat says, I don't like him either, but you made him your God. You live with it. So uh, I, about a year and a half after that, when I started going to Al-Anon, she came over for one more dinner. She only invited twice, and you'll find out why here in just a second. After the second dinner, she's sitting at the table with Leslie and I. She looked over at me, and she said, I don't believe that you should have to live like this. I think you should throw her out. God, I love that woman. <laughs> I didn't throw her out because I wasn't ready, and I wasn't done. We don't do stuff till we're done. Year and a half into my wife's sobriety, we're fighting worse than we've ever fought before. We're breaking, we're Saturday night at the fights. I'm smashing things in my house. I had a big bottle collection in the kitchen. I don't drink. Somebody comes over with a bottle, we drink that much of it. It's in the cupboard for 25 years. I don't touch it. She's afraid of it, but she told me when she got sober that I didn't have to throw it out because I asked. And then she would pick fights with me so that I'd get mad enough for it to be okay for her to get in there and drink the booze. And her sponsor gave her direction to share that with me after about the third one of these big drag outs. And I stopped her and said, ooh, got it. Don't have to tell me twice. And I took all those 40 bottles of booze out of the cupboard and smashed them with a waffle hammer. I put a trash can in there. You want to look good starting out, but I was throwing them up in the air and hitting them over the center field fence with a 28-ounce framing hammer. And my wife is in the bedroom talking to her sponsor on the phone, working on her spiritual recovery. (laughs) She hadn't had a drink in eight months. I'm nuts. We're breaking the house up, and I'm nuts. So I go to Al-Anon. I call up central office. I have them send me a directory because her and Lizzie Borden have been trying to 12-step me for a while and I'm having none of it. And I don't want them to have the satisfaction of knowing I'm going to go. So I sneak out to a meeting and by then my wife had tricked me. She says, I need you to start coming to AA meetings with me because they really think that you're my imaginary friend. Now, we have already talked about imaginary friends, so I have a particular phobia about that. So I agreed to come. Every Saturday night we became regulars at this meeting and and I, you know, are there any alcoholics in the room? And they'd all go like this, and I'm with her, which was just fine. So, uh, and I'm starting to hear the music of recovery from sober alcoholics, from podiums and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm beginning to want what they have. One day I went to my wife and I says, I really, I really love to join AA. You guys just really have such a great thing here. And she said, so join. I said, but I don't drink. She said, I will vouch for you. <laughs> 
she was so desperate for me to get some help for my own spiritual disease that she would have lied in AA to tell him I was a falling down drunk just to get me to go to meeting. And uh, that or I would have to step up my drinking considerably. So I went to this first meeting and, uh, you know, I wasn't struck lean, mean, and serene. I didn't even really like it. It was on a recovery ward at a hospital and uh, the old timers there had about a year and everybody else was like their first day and they had relatives on the ward trying to get sober from drugs and alcohol. And I just, and the, you know, the long timers, the one people with a year and a half did all the talk and I thought, well, that sucks. I'm not staying here. About three days later, I went to a meeting that, uh, that I wound up going back to for a lot of years until it closed. And it was, it was just what I was afraid of. It was exactly what I was afraid of when I walked in. It was a bunch of little old blue-haired ladies, about eight of them. Uh, Today I count as one of my blessings that nobody was knitting. If they'd have been knitting, that would have been it. If they're knitting, I'm out of here. They weren't knitting. But what they were doing was they were telling pieces of my story. Just a little bit over here and a little bit over there. And somehow or another, this gigantic ego which had sustained me my entire life dropped just enough for me to hear that there might be something here for me. And I began coming back to that meeting. That Saturday, I went to a meeting that was to become my home group, and I still attend that meeting today when I'm not here with you. That was a meeting this morning at 9 o'clock in, uh, in uh, Saugus, California, where I walked in to a room with 40 or 50 women. I was pretty much the only guy. There were other guys that came and went once in a while, but I was the only one from the beginning that I came, and I my, my butt was in the chair every week. And I'm trying not to be new. I'm trying not to, to stick out. I'm trying to be anonymous in a room full of 40 women. And my answer to doing that is that I'm an avid cyclist. I ride a lot of miles every year is to show up there on my bicycle. But I'm wearing bicycle clothes. Anybody know what that is? That's spandex, heat shrink, glow in the dark so you don't get run over by another car. Uh, no secrets from the world, roadie bicycle suit. And I'm trying to be anonymous at a, at a meeting full of women. So I'd, I would wear a knapsack with my street clothes and change into it. And I'd get there early and set up the chairs. I'd change into my street clothes. And when the last person left at the end of the meeting, I'd change back out. I never put my hand up as a newcomer. I was afraid. I was afraid. And a couple of months into that, I recognized that I'd earned my seat in Al-Anon, that that was my seat to claim. And uh, I showed up without the street clothes. And I walked in. And, you know, I haven't stuck my hand up as a newcomer. I really haven't wanted to talk to any of you. When I went to my first AA meeting, I didn't really want to touch anybody. And they stood up and held me in place for the Lord's prayer, for God's sakes. I, I bristled because I'd put God in the ground with that daughter in 1977. Didn't want any part of that. And I uh, showed up in that spandex, glow-in-the-dark roadie, no secrets from the world, bicycle suit. And this big old redhead came over and patted me on my spandex butt and said, Keep coming back, honey. <laughs> She's a dear friend of mine to this day, and she's still a regular at those meetings. Anyway, I got involved right away. I'm, I'm showing up early. I'm setting up the chairs. Really, I just wanted to fit in. I, I wanted to already be there when you got there putting up the chairs, so you just want, you'll think I'm a visiting dignitary from World Service Office in New York, which is where it was then. You'll just leave me alone. I needed to be left alone. And eventually I began dabbling with the idea of a sponsor and the steps. And, uh, you know, I did, you know, the first AA meeting, I heard the 12 steps. I was fascinated. I went home, did all 12 of them that night in the shower. <laughs> did my inventory over the shower door with my wife, who was sitting in the other room. And uh, just wild and woolly. And, and uh, I get, began getting involved in service. Uh, you know, I still show up early to those meetings. I'm still a half hour early for most every meeting I go to, and I'm there setting up the chairs. Today I do it for a little different me- reason. I do it because I'm the only one who knows how to set the chairs up right. <laughs> You want to find out who the spiritual giants are at your meeting, show up early and set them up different. 
I'm a district rep at my home group, and somebody came up with a problem that they were having business meetings, and like one or two people were showing up from the business meeting, from a meeting that has like 15, 20 people. And they said, what do we do? I said, that's easy. Next business meeting, vote to change the chair setup. I guarantee you the next district meeting, the next business meeting, they'll all be there. Everybody will. I don't know if they've done that yet. I haven't heard anybody share about it, but we'll see. So I got a sponsor, very brief amount of time. He was another guy in Al Anon. I think he was there looking for the women. He had about six months and he had never worked the steps. And I wound up eventually sponsoring him, which is another whole story. And uh, I wound up with a woman sponsor, which created some problems in my home. My wife had some real opinions about that. She does the AA, men sponsor men, women sponsor women, and you never cross. And she was very threatened by that. And it was real rough in our house for a while that we couldn't share each other's recovery. I look back at that today as it was the right thing to do at the right time. I needed a sponsor. I needed somebody who had worked the steps and somebody who was there every week, somebody who was involved in service. This woman met all of those criteria. I also needed to have a situation in my home where we weren't going to share each other's recovery. Because frankly, I'm going to meddle in hers. And frankly, she's afraid she's going to meddle in mine. Have you talked to her? What did you tell her about that? Did you do a sexual inventory with her? So there became a period of time where we couldn't share each other's recovery at all, which was just right, because we needed to get a base in both of our programs without each other's uh, assistance. And today we both walk parallel paths of recovery in AA and Al-Anon, for which I'm tremendously grateful. And uh, that lady was my sponsor for five years. I've had a couple of men sponsors since then. And... uh, uh my wife came and made amends to me into that sponsor after a few years and said that I, I had no business meddling in that, that you grew tremendously with her as a sponsor and it was none of my business and she made an amends for that. And uh, it just worked. That sponsor was addicted to service. Every time a job came up in Alamon, her hand went in the air. Every time. And I got the job. <laughs> One of the first ones was we had, a, we had a lady who's a very prolific entertainer and she wrote a skit called The Garden of Life. And I played the alcoholic weed whose job it was to seduce Miss Daisy. <laughs> I'm the only guy, pal. They're going to they're gonna make me the alcoholic in all the skits. And you know what? I would know that was the lamest thing I could think of to do. You couldn't have beat me enough to make me do that all of my life. And I did it because I came to you guys out of answers. If I want what you got, I've got to do what you do. And I showed up for rehearsals, and they drugged that thing to conventions. And, oh, we did it everywhere. It was odd. There's still pictures around. That's one of my recurring nightmares. And uh, I went other places in service. I wound up as an intergroup rep and then my first intergroup meeting. Well, you know, my group said, we want to elect him the intergroup rep. And I said, I think you have to have a year, and I've only got 11 months. And they said, he's absolutely right. They tabled the motion for a month and elected me anyway. <laughs> and off I go to intergroup where the first night I'm there, the leader asked me to stand at a podium like this in front of about 250 represented groups and read the 12 traditions. And my knees were knocking so bad, I'm sure that the microphone was picking them up. I was scared to death. You wouldn't believe that to see me now because I can't get me off of a microphone now. I just went a lot of places in service. I wound up getting involved in, in Al-Anon institutions work. It's been a real thrill of mine to be involved in that I, because of that and, and uh, guidance to that sponsor and the things that she had me do, and I got involved. And, and uh, I wound up indirectly uh, outside of Al-Anon on a committee with the state of California where we go into the prison systems. Well, I believe as an Al-Anon, I'm not an alcoholic, and I'm going with all these AA members and, and uh, NA members and CA members to go into these prisons to talk to guys who are in there principally, 80% or more of them, the studies have said, are in there directly or indirectly because of drugs or alcohol as an Al-Anon member. 
And I don't see any difference between those people in there and me out here. The only thing that separates me is that night when I, when the voice came over the radio and stopped me from killing some people. Uh, it's a, it's a thing of seconds and inches for us on both sides of the program. Al- alcoholism is progressive and fatal for, even for people who do not have it. We lost a guy last year who, uh, about 18 months ago, he was a newcomer to Alamon, he was in a lot of pain, and he hadn't got a sponsor, and he, we couldn't drag him to coffee, we tried, we'd go to coffee after our meetings, I think that that's where the real foundation is, is when I saw that in AA, and I wasn't seeing it in Alamon, and I says, you know what, that's my mission in Alamon, we're going to coffee, and I drug him to coffee for years, now they go whether I'm there or not, and we couldn't get this guy to go to coffee, and he never asked me to sponsor him, but he called me for a while, and a week before Christmas in 1999, stuck a gun in his mouth and killed himself. He died of the disease of alcoholism because the liquid alcohol is not required to be present for it to be a fatal disease. It's a very serious uh, disease that we deal with here, and thank God we can deal with it with some levity and look back on some of the stupid things we did and laugh a little bit about them instead of crying. And uh, I'll bring you up to speed about the last year. I've only got a few more minutes left. They said I could go as long as I want. Bad, bad thing to say to me. But I won't keep you here too long. Uh, we've had a lot of stuff happen. My wife and I, together, we sponsor a lot of people between us. We treat them like they're our kids. And, you know, when your world gets as big as it gets in AA and Alamon, because we travel a lot and do a lot of service on a lot of levels, we just know a lot of people. It's seldom that I go anywhere in the country to a conference. I don't know somebody from, from some kind of a service commitment or a speaking engagement or speakers that have come to visit us or vacations we've been on. Your world just tends to get bigger, and I collect alcoholics. I, I love alcoholics. Drunk or sober, I love alcoholics. I have to have boundaries with the ones that are drunk, but I still love them. I love my family. None of them have gotten sober. I love them. I just love them from over here. I love them until drunk 30, and then I excuse myself, and they do what they've got to do. And I don't take the rescue calls in the middle of the night, thank God. I sit and tell them that's very nice. Thanks for sharing. And I go back to sleep. And uh, you know, if, if, there, if a consequence is something that's going to get them sober, that's what they need to do. And uh, uh, we had a lady that my wife sponsored. It was one of the first ones that she ever got in AA, and she called every day, going to commit suicide. She called up. She was afraid nobody would call her back, so she'd call and say, I'm going to kill myself to get my wife to call her. My wife would call her every day. She called her every day no matter what. And she'd say, honey, you don't have to call and say you're going to kill yourself for me to call you back. I'll call you back. And she sponsored her. She was the longest-running sponsee at that time. And she had about, she had been seven years in and out. She'd get two or three years, but she had severe uh, emotional and mental disorders, and she would wind up in psychiatric care and wind up out there. And she fell into the hands of a group that thought you should never take anything that affects you from the neck up, and she really needed her meds. And uh, she made, they made her throw them all away, and she flushed them. And uh, uh, within a very short time after that, uh, this is how squirrely it got. On Monday, uh, the Monday of this week, she wrote a letter to my wife, this beautiful letter saying, I want to thank you for being my sponsor for seven years, and, and I've been operating in the dark, and suddenly a light has come on, and I understand what the journey is about. And I'm so excited to be able to, to share this journey with you, and I can't wait to get on with it. She sent that letter on Monday, and before it arrived at our house on Wednesday, Tuesday, she sat in the living room and took her life. The disease of alcoholism took her. My sponsor shared that with me. I called him up. I was angry. <sighs> These are like our children. You know, we go everywhere together. I drag all my sponsees everywhere. She drags all hers everywhere. Sometimes we all go places together. We all go to meetings, on uh, AA meetings together and stuff. And it's like losing one of your kids. And I called my sponsor up angry, and my sponsor said, the disease of alcoholism has killed another one. 
And I don't understand that. She was sober. As I understand sober, she was sober. And he said the disease of alcoholism is so powerful it can reach past the plug in the jug and kill you anyway. Uh, at that time, I was being sponsored by a man who had 23 years of sobriety in AA on top of being a member in good standing of Al-Anon, which I believe, by the way, is the highest rank any of us attain. I'm happy to go up here and talk to you folks, but my spot is in the front row. That's where you find me at most meetings, leaning forward listening, because I really need what you guys have got to share with me. A lot of other things have happened. I don't have time to tell you about all of them, but I'll tell you what's going on right now. My wife sponsors another woman. She sponsored her for five years in and out of AA. We have a phone number that ends in, in five sevens in a row. And whether they are drunk or sober, they remember the phone number. And I got that number specifically to use it for my business. We've never done it. I believe that there are people alive today because they remembered that number, drunk or sober, and they called my wife and she went and got them. I believe that, and I left that number alone. It would have been a great asset to my business, and I just leave it alone. And uh, this woman's called us drunk or sober for five years. She has... Uh, at the age of 29 last year, she was hitting bottom. I was hoping it was her bottom. She's got four little kids from age 12 to 1. And she was finally homeless. He'd finally left. She was finally out of answers, and she was ready to do something. And uh, my wife sent me on an AA 12-step call to take her to a, to a halfway house because she had to fly out of town for a conference. And I thought that was a bad idea to go by myself, so I asked her if she'd send one of her AA girls with me Thank God she did, because we got there, and we about had to beat the door down to get in and get her. She wouldn't answer the door, and when she did answer the door, she was expecting me, and she was drunk, naked, and wet. And my friend Kit looked over and says, that's why I'm here, and dressed her up, and we packed her up and took her to the recovery house. <laughs> so we loaded her in, in the car and bought her a bottle, which was another whole comedy routine where, you know, I'm an Al-Anon on a AA 12-step mission. We're Batman and Robin. You know, AA's answer to Batman and Robin. And we go to this liquor store, and the two of us are holding her up while she's picking a bottle. And this poor guy behind the counter is watching us, thinking them guys are going to have a party. Because we're telling her, if you drink this, it'll be okay, right? <laughs> Just helping the guy's fantasy life out. And we dropped her off at this place. I carried her in. She drank enough of that bottle that I physically carried her in and laid her in the bed. I told him, I, they, at this house, was a woman's recovery house, says, I brought you a, a precious girl alcoholic. I hope you can do something for her. Three weeks later, she's better, and she breaks out, and she's drunk again in a short amount of time. Meanwhile, we farmed her kids out everywhere. Uh, after about two weeks, my wife and I end up with the two middle ones. They were, at that time, were three and five. And they're little children who have been heavily damaged by the disease of alcoholism. On the day that we went to the apartment after I delivered her to the halfway house to get her uh, to move her out of the house because she had been evicted. We're going to store her furniture someplace. The five-year-old was curled up in fetal position in one of the bedrooms asleep on the floor without a blanket or a pillow uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning. They've lived with us now for five months. I've yet to see that five-year-old who is now six taking an impromptu nap of any, of any kind. You have to just about kill him to get him to take a nap. But her world just collapsed in around her. She just curled up in fetal position on the floor and went to sleep because she didn't have any more answers. Mommy's gone. The house is gone. Daddy's gone. The disease of alcoholism has cleaned everything out of her life. So we have these kids, kids for five months. We keep checking mom into different places. She's been in 72-hour lockdowns twice. A month ago, she cut both of her wrists. She has 29 staples in her wrists. And uh, we put her into another place. It happened to be a Jewish women's uh, recovery center where they would take her for free, just based on her last name. 
And uh, she was there for three weeks. They offered her six months or more if she needed it. She stayed three weeks and she was gone again. And it got to the point where my wife and I had to get together and make a decision because my wife is her sponsor and we have a conflict of interest. We're now taking care of two of her little girls who are beginning, beginning to blossom in a house where there is recovery. The effects of alcoholism are there and they will probably always be there, but they're beginning to come out and be able to love people and hug people. And and uh, and we're afraid now that they're going to go back to the situation because mom can't get sober and dad's not sober either. We sat down and we had to come to the conclusion that this issue was no longer about mom's sobriety because that's what it had been about up until then. I'm in my disease. I'm into somebody else's sobriety and I'm going over backwards and delivering them to halfway houses and taking their kids in and and uh, just doing a, a list of things I can't even share with you. They're so long. And we had to sit down, my wife and I, and have a good conscience and decide it was now about the children. As a result of that, we did something that... Uh, was really hard for my wife to do because it was a conflict for her as a sponsor. We had to go to court and file for legal custody of these kids. Because mom's still drunk and she's talking about coming to get him because he's come back from Florida and they've got an apartment. Two weeks ago, he's in jail for beating her up and the cops call my wife and say, come get her, she's afraid for her life. And two days later, they're living together again. And we don't want to send the kids back to them. My fondest wish in life is that that woman puts her life back together, gets sober and gets a house and gets her children back. I would give, I would give a limb for that. But I have no intention of letting those children go back to that situation. So we made that decision that it was about the kids, and we filed for custody last week. That night, she, the woman called up. She had no idea that we'd done that, and she said, I'm coming. I'm coming to get them. She lived about two hours away, and my wife said, no, you're not. She says, I have to come and get them. I'm going to come get them now. My wife said, you can't. The judge says that you cannot. The other two children a week before we had done ours had been given legal custody to the other people also to protect all of the children. The children have their own attorney appointed by the court, which is another whole thing. And uh, what I'm doing is what you guys have taught me in Al-Anon. I'm suiting up, showing up, and I'm being of service. I wake up every day and I get on my knees and I say the third step prayer. It's a very dangerous thing for you to do if you're very set in your ways. Because I like being a parent. I like being a, a husband with a wife with no children in the house. I like not wearing any clothes. And I like going where I want to when I want to. And I like my life. But I got up in the morning that day like I did every other day. And I turned my will and my life over to the power of God as I understand Him. And He had another plan. And today I have now four and six-year-old little girls in my house. And we're, we've got one more hearing to get, uh, get permanent custody, which we believe we will probably get. And a month ago, they started calling us mom and dad. Now, we don't tell them to do that, and we don't tell them either way because we've been talking to therapists and counselors about it. And they said, you know, it's easier for them. They don't have to explain you to anybody. Your mom and your dad, you're not. My mom's drunk, and, you know. The six-year-old asks, is my mommy drunk? Is she really drunk? Well, she won't be when I go home because I'll make her go to meetings. Because they've seen what recovery is, and they'd like to have that in their house. Today, my job in al and my job in life every day when I get out of bed is to suit up, show up, and be of service. I do that to the best of my ability today. I don't do it perfectly every day. I don't know what God's got in store. Those kids might be gone again. But whatever God's got in store always amazes me, and I'm going to keep doing that third-step prayer. I want to thank you for your very kind hospitality. I have now officially run over, and I'm going to shut up. Thank you very much.